the uh, following uh, program has little or no relevance to the important concerns that certainly run through your deeply involved life of the times. And uh, in addition to that, there are many elements of the following program which are in exceedingly bad taste, a questionable taste at best. So we here at this deeply involved station would like to recommend that you read the fine print at the bottom of the program which says that nothing on this show represents the attitudes of the management nor, as a matter of fact, the performer involved. Uh, it's just a, it's there, it's like toadstools. It just came around, you know? Deep in the heart of night, they're growing everywhere right now at this very minute. I mean, it's just uh, incomprehensible. The uh, subtleties of the the immediate environment that we fester in right now at this minute. I just just hold it a second frame, just just a minute now. There are probably ten thousand tiny eyes peering at you from under the sink, with that little feelers working. They don't give a damn whether you enjoyed your Twinkie or not tonight. In fact, they don't even... They can't conceive of the concept of a Twinkie. Now, by the way, in case you're going to get involved in the Twinkie discussion tonight, I don't like to step on anybody's religion, but I happen to be a banana Twinkie man. Uh, there are those who are more orthodox, the vanilla Twinkies. Uh, there is a subgroup which uh, is hung on Yankee Doodles. Uh, devil dogs. Have you ever had a good devil dog recently? Oh, I'll tell you. And uh, Count Chocula. That's a real... You don't know about Count Choc... It's the new cereal that the devil himself created. And so, uh, tonight, I mean, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's tear aside the veil of hypocrisy. <laughs> George, yes, let's do that. And uh, let us expose the foibles of modern man. What do you say, huh? <laughs> Hey, by the way, the next time I, I come across a book that is described as a searing indictment of modern civilization, Charlie Applerot, in his second brilliant novel, rips aside the sham of hypocrisy and leaves civilization quivering in its nakedness. A must. Well, Charlie Applerot once again reduces civilization to its bare bones and shows that the world is a bunch of hypocritical slobs that is all except he and his readers, of course. All present company excluded. And I might point out that all present companies excluded, too. There isn't a single one of you who's ever had a cockroach under your sink. <laughs> Not one. Or who has in the dark of night looked up at the ceiling and said to yourself, Oh, my God, I wish I had a jar of Skippy Chunk-style peanut butter. There's nothing in this damn house. Nothing. You can hear the goldfish out there eating like hell. There's nothing. There is hardly a man alive today who has not felt the pang of guilt when he's sitting in this elegant restaurant and is serving him this elegant French food who has not felt a sudden desire for a McDonald's double-deck big boy cheeseburger. It's all right, John. It's all right. See, the essence of, of tranquility, and I'm sure that all of you wish to experience the essence of tranquility, uh, the essence of tranquility, friends, is to, is to look deep into oneself 
That's one of those great phrases. Uh, sounds like you know, just a typical kind of thing that WBAI would have. <laughs> Look into yourself tonight from 10 to 11. Well, uh, let's uh, try to do that, shall we? Right now. Close your eyes. What do you see? Hey, seriously, though, close your eyes for a second. What do you actually see when you close your eyes? No, no, that's not true, John. If you say nothing, there's something wrong with your nervous system. Close your eyes and actually, honestly, tell me what you see. Is it black when you close your eyes? Do you see nothing but darkness? Or do you see a faint gray light filtering through the capillary system of the eyelid, producing tiny red and white dots that float in that gray curtain of nothingness, which incidentally was the final proof that existentialism really works. <laughs> you didn't think I'd get to that, did you? All right, let us please salute the nothingness of now, please. And so tonight, this deeply concerned public service-oriented radio station once again salutes part of man's eternal march towards the sea. I mean, the sea of time, we're talking about. We're not talking about the Raritan Bay. Thank you, John. No, 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 not all the way out. They're just coming in there. Tonight, we would like to salute, if we may, the nudists of England who are planning a mass parachute jump in costume to, for charity, as a matter of fact, and also to further the cause of exhibitionism everywhere. And so a vast crowd of parachutists in St. Albans, England, the Five Acres Nudist Club, is going to jump from a series of gypsy moth airplanes in concert and in formation next Sunday at 3 p.m. on the English countryside. We'd like to salute that gesture. Nothing like a English bare bottom descending on you as you're quietly tooling around the countryside in your Humber. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, there it is. Of course, there is a problem there. There might be some excitement, because you never know when you're really, you know, you never really quite know where you're going to land in a parachute. And when a nudist is doing his thing and he lands in the wrong place, well, it might be more of an exhibition than he thought. Bring it up there, Charlie. Man, there we go. All right, hold on. That's enough. That's enough. My God, the muskrats are tunneling into the Dutch dikes these days. I heard about that, too. And I mean, I, no, 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 no. We're not referring to that type of dike. We're talking about the real type, you know, where they keep the water out. That's another thing. Uh... <laughs> oh, you got... Oh, I tell you. I tell you. What's he talking about? That's right. You just keep that attitude, friends, and we'll stay out of trouble. Now, uh... Yes, sir. There's nothing like a good, dumb audience to keep you on the air. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I, I uh, no, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm as a flyer, I'm, I'm interested in this mass parachute jump. Now, um, I, I suppose if you're an earthbound mortal and you haven't done any flying, I mean, other than commercial flying, you're not aware that the sky out there is crowded with a number of strange objects which uh, the non-flyer rarely sees. Um, in fact, I'll tell you, uh, I, I, I ran into a pair. I didn't actually run into them, but one day I was flying out over the 
over the hills of Pennsylvania, or just this side of the hills, you know, the mountains out there. And I was flying along about 4,000 feet uh, this side of the hills of Pennsylvania, out there in, in the, that uh, vast country. You know, when you fly, when you do a lot of flying, uh, private flying, you're suddenly hit with something that, that uh, you ne- it never hits you so vividly when you drive or when you walk around on the ground. And that is the vast areas of this country that are totally uninhabited. I mean, absolutely nothing. You can fly for mile after mile after mile, nothing but green under you. And uh, you, you, you notice that all the people... Then you, you begin to realize that we really truly are a herd creature when you do much flying. Because you see this great mass of people, fantastic smoke flying out of it, and smog over it, and fist fights going on, and it's all in one little mess. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a crowd of cockroaches. And then suddenly you go, you know, 50 feet, nothing. Green. We're a herd animal, friends. That's right. And by the way, speaking of the herd, do you know that the electronic herd animal is even more intriguing? Wouldn't you feel bugged to realize that you were the only guy in the world listening to this show? Think about this. Would you listen? I could just see this guy calling you up, you know, how, how uh, you, you, you read all these uh, surveys, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, the, 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 the uh, various polls, they always say, uh, for example, they'll say, uh, uh, TV Guide every week, you know, they publish down all the shows and it says uh, Dick Cavett is up one-tenth of one percent of a point. Well, I mean, they carry it to the fifth or sixth decimal point, saying, now, I have never been called on any of this stuff. I know that you've never been called, and... This is one of the great mysteries of who the hell they do call. But uh, nevertheless, it's taken on faith, see? Just like angels in religion is taken on faith. You, you have to believe there are angels. Not that you've never seen one. You've got to believe it, right, John? All right. That's in our business. We believe these people are called. Now, it could be very well that the chief pollster calls his aunt up. says, how are you feeling about Nixon today? She says, huh? He writes it down. You know, <laughs> 422 people were called. Who knows, you know? So, nevertheless, I think one of the great scary feelings of our time is aloneness. In fact, this is true of any time. You know, one of the things out in the, in the, in the, in the frontier world, when people were living all by themselves on the frontier of America, that they used to have a yearly get-together where all the frontier guys would go and stand around and drink beer and yell and holler and try to make the scene with other, you know, with other guys' wives and all that. Oh, yeah, they used to do this, you know. To reassure them that there were other human beings out there. That's all. It's important. Now, what would happen if tonight you're sitting there, you know, wallowing around, drinking beer, being a slob, you know, and you're walking around in your underwear and stuff, and all of a sudden the phone rings. And you're listening to the show, right? The phone rings. And a voice on the other says, Excuse me, sir, this is the Watanabe Pole. Uh, could you please tell me what television show you are watching? Uh, what? Uh, would you please tell me what the television program you are watching, please? Uh, television? No, I, I don't have my set. I don't, uh, I'm not watching TV. Uh, why? Uh, you're not watching television. No, I'm, uh, I'm just sitting around drinking beer, you know. Yeah, you know, what the hell, it's, uh, Emily's out. I figure, what the hell, it's in the drinking beer. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, what are you doing outside of drinking beer? Well, I'm listening to the radio. The radio? Yes, uh, I'm listening to the radio. Uh, and, uh, 
Uh, well, could you please tell me what uh, program you are listening to on the radio at this time? Um, guys, this is this guy here talking about uh, uh, hitting these old ladies with fly swatters down at the D'Agostino and, uh, uh, you know. Oh, you are listening to the uh, Shepherd program? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, thank you. You're the only person that we have contacted in over ten years who have been listening to that program. You're the only listener. Uh, what? A moment of total terror. I'll guarantee you within five minutes you would rush, turn your dial to get back to the crowd. We'll let that marinate for a minute there. You don't mind if we're marinating here a bit. Of course, this is a... How many ads do you read that, that, that say 57 billion buyers of Impalas can't be wrong? <laughs> That's a great fallacy. You know, 50 million Frenchmen can't be wrong. Friends, Frenchmen have never been right. I mean, <laughs> Frenchmen have been notoriously wrong throughout the ages. If you know anything about French history, you know that they've laid many eggs. So, you know... I'm flying along there one day, cooling it over the, the Pennsylvania countryside, when I see a vague shadow out of my left, somewhere from my left. Now, when you fly, you, all of your senses are, are extraordinarily uh, amplified. You agree with this, John? John is a pilot, too. You, uh, you, everything is, is, is much more uh, aware and alive. I'm, I'm talking about... Senses and not necessarily ideas. Senses, so your eyes are alive. Your, your, your. Uh, there's a sensual feeling that you get from piloting an aircraft. A feel of, of of things, mysterious forces operating on you. The wind, you know. For one thing, when you're flying an airplane, you don't feel the wind. You know, you don't. You, and you can be you can be bucking a forty mile an hour wind, but you don't really feel it unless there's turbulence. And so. They, they, you can, you are led into all kinds of deceptive movements. Uh, you can, you can, you can, for example, be five miles off your course because there has been a quartering wind which you did not take into account. You didn't feel it. You see, because when you walk around in your ordinary life, you're aware of a lot of things. I'm talking about you as a physical animal that you don't even think of. For example, gravity. You're aware of the pull of gravity on you all the time. This is called their sense of balance. And it's working all the time. As a machine, your body is saying, yeah, that's down, that's up. You never say to yourself, which side is the sky on now this morning? Automatically, you know. Why is this? Well, because this machine, you, your body is doing this stuff all the time. Now, a wind comes. You feel the wind up against your left cheek. You feel it. You actually feel it. And you make adjustments for that. I mean, you tack into the wind when you're walking. You really do, you know. You tack into the wind when you're walking. You don't think, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make a, a five-degree course correction here at 6th Avenue <laughs> because, <laughs> no, but your body automatically does this thing. See, it's like some, uh, deep down inside of you is a, is a dark primal animal that's working away with animal instincts, some dark, mysterious, basically carnivorous animal reminds me this is WOR New York that's right carnivorous you heard me flesh eating friends 
Okay, in answer to a lot of letters and stuff we've gotten, if you'd like to get an autographed copy of Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memory, my new book, I'll be in Plainfield, New Jersey, this Friday, September 3rd, between 1 and 3, at the Plainfield Bookshop, or rather the Plainfield Book House at 218 East Front Street. Now, if you have to work, later that day, that's Friday, between 4 and 6 p.m., I'll be at the Book House, 178 East Front Street in Plainfield. It's your chance to get a copy of Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memory. Palisades has a ride, Palisades has a fun. Yeah. Come, Come on. on. Come on over. Fun lovers everywhere. Come on. You mind if I sing the lyrics, John? It Palisades says here, sing with Elon. The hell of a thing to say. Here we go. Here's my favorite. Ride the coaster, don't they? In the waves of the pool, you'll have fun. So come on, come on over. Yeah, yeah. Palisades will disappear into the night. And you know, just a few years from now, people will say, they will. Uh, guys will walk around and say, hey, do you remember Palisades Amusement Park? Oh, wow. Weren't those the days? Well, of course, everyone will assume that Palisades Amusement Park was in operation late in the year of 1904. Actually, as we all know, uh, here it is. It's still swinging, see? It, but it's all over at the end of this year. There, at the end of this summer, no longer would you hear what is probably the most distinctive New York area commercial of them all. I'm serious. It's a specific commercial. In fact, in, uh, real New Yorkers can tell what season of the year it is. You, there's no way to know. You're walking along 6th Avenue, the crud is coming down, and you know, the Jersey crud is drifting around, you know, cigar butts up to your, up to your blooming knickers, you know, and beer cans bouncing off your head. And once in a while, the Airmail Express comes sailing. Have you ever been uh, the victim of the Airmail Express? Well, see, you live in the elegant suburbs, John. You do not know that in the middle of Manhattan, there's a thing called the Airmail Express. That means when you fill up a garbage bag, you just throw it out the window. And uh, <laughs> many's the time, you know, you're down there and you're washing, wear a suit, and next thing you know, there's a great, fantastic shower of used, uh, used uh, coffee grounds and, and old potato peelings and other unmentionables. Some of them really are unmentionables. They come drifting down out of the sky, and you know that you're right in the heart of good old, friendly, fun city. I wonder if, I wonder if Lindsay's ever gotten a sack on the shoulder. I'm curious. I doubt it. You know, these, these guys go... They, uh, they they ride around town in these big elegant limousines and appear at the elegant functions in the park where all the elegant people ride their bicycles on a Sunday morning. And they think that's New York. No. That's not where it is. Oh no. And so the real New Yorker, he does not he's not involved in these things. The re the average walking around New Yorker, do you think he's gonna go out on a Sunday morning and ride his bike through through Park Avenue and up and down through the Central Park? Get out. These are the nice people you see on a Wednesday afternoon at the jazz concert at the Museum of Modern Art. That is not a real New Yorker. That is a displaced Clevelander who has come to New York for those niceties. What is the real New Yorker doing? Well, it's hard to say. He lives a, a nocturnal, subterranean life. He is rarely recorded. He spends a lot of his time walking around on 6th Avenue cloaked in am... Yes, he does. I'm sorry. You see, just the look of distaste on your face showed that you're not a New Yorker. Some guys are basically Darien. 
other guys are basically Hempstead. And they, they think, you see, they think they know about these things. They, they, the saddest thing is to hear some congressman get on, you know, and you know this guy, uh, I mean, you, you just know, you, you just know for a fact this guy has not waded through oceans of cockroaches on a quiet uh, Saturday morning, you know, after the cockroaches, you know, they've arrived, they have their convention for the weekend in your kitchen, and uh, you've w wandered through them, and you can hear people yelling up and down the air shaft and, Oh, listen, I lived on an air shaft one time, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> I could tell you air shaft stories. And so you hear this congressman saying, Well, I understand the basic philosophy of urban life, the inner city urban life, and that we plan to get out. Bourgeois. The average citizen of New York, seriously, he can tell it's spring. He knows it's springtime. The first time he hears, has a rock, ah, spring is here. Of course, see, spring is not a matter of weather in New York. I mean, you're living, you're living in amid this Jersey crud drifting down. You don't know whether it's hot or cold or winter or summer. There are no birds. You do not see robins walking along 6th Avenue. I have not once seen a bluebird on 49th Street. Not once. Never have I seen a blue jay scutter across 1st Avenue down around uh, 10th Street. Never once. What is it? You hear it drifting out of the air. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be spring. And when it disappears... When a palisade spot disappeared, then you know it's time to batten down the mental hatches when you're in New York. Winter cannot be far behind. Well, what does winter mean? Does winter mean different weather? Not really. It means a different tenor to the complaints. That's basically the difference between various times of the year in New York. So, because complaining is a New York way of life, it's more than that. It's the it, it, let's say it's the basic quetch. It's uh, excuse me if if uh, the mispronunciation was there, but of course we're all part of that scene. I I am very conversant in Indiana French, that sort of thing, and uh, my object is to, is to communicate. I'm not worried about punctuation. And so in in the middle of winter, the New Yorker automatically complains about winter. Now he has not experienced it. Remember that. First of all, almost every place in New York is a sealed container, a capsule. So a guy that is in an office, say, at 90th and Park Avenue, believe me, there isn't one-tenth of a degree difference in almost all of his waking life between the middle of January and the middle of August. Now, he's living in a, in a vast sealed womb. This is really basically the facts of the inner city life. Now, what is inner city? No, well, inner city is also a racial thing. If you... <laughs> you cannot conceivably be called a denizen of the inner city if you are white and you are not a member of a basically embattled minority group. You follow that? Well, anybody who lives in the inner city knows that this is a fallacy. The same winds of evil blow upon all without question. The same fragrance blows off the Jersey Marsh and treats all residents alike. Cockroaches do not know social caste. And so you struggle your way up 6th Avenue, breathing in the rich effluvia of the life that you have chosen. And don't think for a minute that anybody who lives in, in the deep inner city has not chosen it. He likes to pretend, no, 
An unkind fate has hurled him into this vast, wearing blender of chicanery. That he is but an innocent victim. Almost said it. It's an old expression we use in the army to describe that type of tripe. Forget it, friends, you've chosen it. And so as you lean your body into the sharp, biting winds of adversity, you realize that you too are bugging your neighbors. Remember that, friends. And that's part of the true life of our time. That uh, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. And so when you complain of the ravening hordes, the crowds of, of, of chowder-headed people that you are surrounded with, remember, to another guy, to somebody else, you are one of the chowder-headed crowd. You're one of the ravening hordes. <laughs> you bet. Oh, listen, one of the big, exciting moments in my life every night. Of course, each guy who lives in the inner city, you see, competes with all other parts of the inner city world. For example, how could... Living in, say, uh, Pitcairn, Pennsylvania, how could a guy in Pitcairn, Pennsylvania feel the fantastic, exultant feeling of total ecstasy of that moment in the middle of a driving rain? That's where it really gets exciting. In the middle of a driving rain on 7th Avenue, right in the heart of the garment district, at exactly 5.30, you, out of all those millions, got a cab. That, friends, takes know-how. I have seen out-of-towners spend weeks trying to get a cab. Because they're not... They just don't know the jungle. They don't know how to do it. There's a certain imperiousness of the real New Yorker to get a cab. That means he's a real cab rider, you know. There's a stance. There's the way you hurl your arm out. There's the way you glare, you see. As you see that cab coming, and you, you glare in such a way that you tell that cab driver, I'm not only hailing you, friends, I've already got your number on top of that cab memorized. You play with me, friends, and it's the Hack Bureau tomorrow morning for you. It's part of it, see. You don't appreciate this, do you, John? Of course not. You live that life of the leisured few. You do not realize what it's like down here in the vast... Indian wrestling mat of time. Down here where every man has got his arm up ready to do battle with the guy next to him. It's like the time Ted Williams, who said it for all of us. Do you know? Do you ever hear of Ted Williams? Well, I remember Ted Williams for one thing. Not because he batted 400, and he did, and he could hit home runs with one hand. But one thing he did on national television, the crowd was booing, see, Ted Williams had, you know, you know how Williams does. Williams up there at the plate, see, and he, he took a couple of big sweeping swings, and he wasn't with it that day, and he popped up, which is a very rare thing for Williams, see. And, of course, the average fan, incidentally, the average fan, and I'm, and, and I'm taking fan as a total thing, not just a fan of a sport, because most of us are fans of one thing or another. You may be a fan of a chick, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're fans of. You may be fan of. Uh, let's say you may dig the Twinkie world. You're you're a Twinkie fan. You know, uh, where Twinkie is mentioned, you immediately start yelling and applauding. Uh, you may be a peanut butter cuckoo. Who knows? You know, you may be a Schlitz man. You may you know who knows what you are. You know, uh, you're a fan. In other words, you stand at the vast altar of achievement and you applaud it. Yeah. Okay, we're talking about fan in general. That's fanatic is what the word really means fanatic. And everybody has one little corner of his life that is fanaticism. 
All you got to do is press the right button, man, and you'll see his eye bulge and his his neck gets purple, you know, and argh, he starts yelling. Uh, why? Because you've touched that one level of fanaticism he's got. You touch that guy in the right spot, and you say, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're living with this guy. You think he's a real, you know, you think he's a real uh, uh, rational human being, which is a very, oh, that's a dangerous thing to think about anybody. Don't ever fall into thinking that anybody's rational. People are rational in one part of their lives and totally irrational in another. And it depends on what part of their life that you're involved in. So, let's take... Some guys are totally irrational about sex. That's, this is this will get them right, right away, see? So here you're with this, this elegant-looking gentleman, you know? He's got uh, silver hair. He works down at the Chase Manhattan Bay. He's your friend, you know, uh, from Chase. And, uh, he's very solid. He, he knows all about numbers and stuff. And you're saying, that's a solid man. Anybody who knows about numbers, you can count on that guy. So you're sitting there with him, you know, at Traps or some other uh, elegant uh, watering trough in uh, midtown Manhattan. <laughs> Can you imagine me at Shrap? But, uh... <laughs> oh, yeah, I suppose. Oh, you gotta, you know, you, you, well, you gotta see the scene to, to know the scene, see? So you're sitting there at Shrap's and, and, uh, and you think he's rational. You're talking about tax rebates and stuff like that, which is about as irrational as you can get. Human beings sitting there about, talking about tax rebates. That's a really... Not, that's like uh, having a big involved discussion of past chess masters. And so uh, you're sitting there talking about tax rebates. <laughs> when all of a sudden, you, this waitress goes by, see, and she's got everything going. In fact, she's got every motor in the place running, you know, and she goes by, and you notice as she walks by, if you carefully notice, this guy's pupils dilate. As all the while, he's talking about tax rebates in Form D. You notice his pupils dilate, and you notice a slight misting over of his rimless glasses. That there has been a sudden change of pulse. He has not changed the beat or the tempo of his voice. Something has rung a bell somewhere deep down in that uh, very solid uh, uh, Oxford gray cased frame, you know? There's some guys who are born wearing Oxford gray jockey shorts. And here he is. He's got them on, see? And his glasses cloud up. And then you turn to him, you say... Oh, wow. Look at that behind. There's a pause. Instantly, he thinks, because he recognizes that you have put into words something which he has thought, that you are not to be trusted for the big loan. So be careful, friends. Be careful. That streak of irrationality in all of us. Which is not irrationality at all. It may be the only rational part we've got. Has it occurred to you that the rational may be the irrational? Now, wait a minute. Think about this for a minute. Don't, don't put it down. I mean, probably for seven, maybe ten weeks, people will argue whether to get a new Castro convertible. What could be more irrational? They even sometimes get to the point where they shoot it out. <laughs> oh, yes. What do you mean, green? Are you out of your bird? That's a 14th green suit. Ah, ah. The next thing you know, shots over a Castro convertible. Oh, listen, uh, the worst argument I ever saw when I was a kid, fantastic family argument, came over. Are you ready for this? Uh... Better. No, no, you're not. This is why. This is why I always find guys like Albie. You know, Edward Albie. 
inadequate in describing the human condition. They don't. They describe the playwright's condition. That's not the human condition. I never once heard my old man and my mother yell about emasculation. They always do that in plays. You know, Richard Burton is always saying to Elizabeth Taylor, You're not going to emasculate me! I get it. I never once heard that argument in real life. Because a guy that's emasculated doesn't know it. Remember that. And a chick who's doing it thinks that she's not doing that either. So nobody ever really argues about that stuff. I, listen, I was, I was party to a battle that went on, I'd say, through the better part of my adolescence. It revolved around garbage. It was the take-out-the-garbage battle. My old man, every day, would get, you know, he'd get up, he'd, he'd run around in the, in the house and yell and holler, and uh, he'd shave, get ready to go to work, and he would rush out of the house at exactly ten minutes past eight, run through the backyard in the direction of the garage to get his car out, his Oldsmobile, right? It's a common thing. You've looked through this, right? Okay. As he rushes through the kitchen, almost invariably, my mother would say, Oh, on your way out to the garage, take out the garbage. There he is. He's all, you know, he's dressed up in his going to the office suit and all that stuff. And here he is carrying out these dripping garbage bags. Well, one day, if I may use the expression, the vernacular, you don't mind if we dip into the vernacular, it hit the fan. The old man is running past the ice box there, refrigerator seat. He's running like hell. <laughs> he was always roughly 12 minutes late, always, to every conceivable event. And so, naturally, his life was fraught with uh, eminent disaster. Uh, that he was, you know, he was about to miss everything. So, uh, <laughs> so he's running out like hell, you know. He's running through the kitchen. And I was sitting there shoveling in the oatmeal. It was an ordinary breakfast. My kid brother's over on the other side of the table. And he's uh, drinking his Ovaltine and whining and stuff. And the old man is running through the kitchen. He used to run. He used to get a good, a good running start, see, from about the dining room on. Because he was going out to do battle with the world now, see. So he would run run through the dining room, and now he's getting up steam. See, he's running past the refrigerator, and he's, he's approaching the back door, see. And he's, getting, he's really getting it going now, because you have to... Believe me, friends, facing the world is not easy. It is not easy. Some people pretend like it's easy, but it's not, you know. Even... Imagine the, the president waking up. You know, it's 8 o'clock, and I'm like, oh, God... You know, there he is. You know, after all, the president, he grows whiskers overnight like you do, too, you know. And he's got a stubble and, and the, his eyes hurting, you know. He's got that, that same pain over his left eye, which he gets every couple of weeks. You know, and wakes up, sits on the edge of the bed. Oh, for... Oh, God. Now I gotta... Oh, I gotta talk to that nut from Turkey again. Oh, when the hell is it ever gonna end? Gee... <laughs> You never think of him because five minutes later he's girded his loins. See, that's called girding your loins. He puts on his president suit and, and uh, you know, and five minutes later he's giving out, issuing statements. And you think that he never had that moment in his life. He says, "Oh, what the hell is it all about? Oh my God! If I can only, you know, no, it's just a, this is a human condition. It's the way it is. Terrible moments. It's like a." You know, everybody sees Johnny Carson come on a TV show. Oh, groovy. 
Listen, I've been behind I've been behind the scenes with Carson. And one time Carson looked at me and says, Oh God, when this goes on and on and on. <laughs> and then you hear out there, and oh, here he comes. Here's Johnny. And instantly he girds his loins and he runs out and the crowd cheers and they never get that moment. When he says, Oh, God. Another one. In fact, you do so many of them, you can't even remember the last one. You know, they go on and on and on. It's like ball games. The baseball players rarely remember last week's game that the, that, you know, that the fans are still talking about. He doesn't remember that catch he made. It's just one long run out towards the outfield someplace. One long battle against in those, those, those long slanting shots that go inside just below the knees. There's nothing distinct about it, a distinct moment. And so the old man is running fast, see. It's just part of his long... Yeah, I know. It's part of his long day, see. And he's running through... And I remember this moment. He's running through the, the dining room. And he carried this, this briefcase, which he had gotten for Christmas one year. Incidentally, that was a prop. I, I, uh, I, don't, I don't recall him ever actually carrying anything important in the briefcase, but the briefcase was part of his shield that he carried against the world. You know, it was, a, it was like Linus's security blanket. Had to have this thing in his hand, saying, "So he's running out with a briefcase." Had his initials on. He loved that. And he's <laughs> he's running out with his briefcase. See? <laughs> and uh, he's he's just now right, let's say three degrees to the port side of the frigid air, and he's gaining momentum. The door is open. He's ready to leap out into the world. When my mother, hanging over the sink with her Brillo pads. By the way, she was one of the rare Brillo pad operators who was a two-handed Brillo pad operator. Most Brillo pad people are either left-handed or right-handed. My mother was ambidextrous and often, uh, in moments of stress, would use two Brillo pads simultaneously, one with each hand. And so here she is, hung over the sink, and the drain on the sink. See, every morning at the same time, our sink used to warm up for its daily work, too. Uh, inanimate objects, you know, do not enter the life uh, of, uh, of strife easily, either. You have to warm your car up, right? Well, you don't think that the John that's in your bathroom there is ready to work at all times. Not at all. It has to be in the mood, I'll tell you. Uh, I, I once lived in an apartment where the John leaked for over two years. Not, never, you never do anything about it. Just a steady growling sound in the next room, you know. Well, the old man is running. The sink is going... <coughs> we had the sink scene. Oh, he used to bug my mother. The sink would go... <coughs> And coffee grounds, somebody else's coffee grounds would come out of our sink. And, and yeah, you know, and, and she's looking over, the, you know, looking down into the sink. It's going, <laughs> she's got her Brillo pads. The old man is running fast. When suddenly she turns, she had fantastic timing. Some people have, it's an innate sense of time. I mean, you know, Ahab had it. Captain Ahab had a sense of timing. Had he thrown that harpoon say, 15 feet to the left of where he threw it, he'd have killed that whale. Had he thrown it 15 feet to the right, he just probably would have nicked him back by the tail, and the whole damn thing, Moby Dick would have gone down the drain, it would have been nothing. It's a sense of timing. You've got to hit that harpoon right where it counts. So she waits just till the time the old man is reaching for the knob. She says, oh, would, uh, would you please take the garbage out of your way? The old man stopped. Well, you've all heard of unprintable oaths, which incidentally they are the only oaths that are printable. Uh, you know what you see written on subway walls constantly? Basic four-letter Anglo-Saxon words that deal with procreation? 
Well, the old man turned and he hurled that single word. He kicked that garbage sack. It was one of the best place kicks I've ever seen. That he beautiful follow-through. He kicked it all the way in over the coffee table in the living room. On one shot. Forty feet. And that started a battle that to this day, the ashes have not yet descended. The bare bones have not yet been picked. What's in a name? Michelob. 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 When the name's Michelob, it's an unexpected pleasure. Michelob. Hey. Oh, Michelob. Michelob, the beer is so good, people don't expect you to serve it to them. It's an unexpected pleasure, so surprise people. Serve Michelob. What's the name of that beer? What's the name, huh? Surprise your friends. Serve them Michelob instead of that slop you usually hand them. <laughs> George, <laughs> that's a great commercial. Uh, by the way, this Thursday... September 2nd, I'm going to be on the Martha Dean Show at 10.15 a.m. like a regular author. <laughs> so tune in, will you? That's Thursday, September 2nd at 10.15 at Martha Dean Show. Listen, uh, we have a thing here from New York Institute of Technology. And uh, if you would like to study for a future in radio, TV, or computer technology, architectural design, and so on, this is a very fine school. If you don't know anything about this school and you happen to drive out along 25A out in, well, it's out in, uh, well, there's two campuses, actually. And uh, it's a beautiful campus in Old Westbury out on Long Island, and they have a new one here in metropolitan New York City across from Carnegie Hall. It's a campus high up in the sky, and all qualified high school graduates, transfer students, and anybody who has any GI training left, can take advantage of New York Institute of Technology's extended registration period. They've just extended it for a lot of uh, GIs coming back. You can write, or you can call, or you can pay a personal visit to the director of admissions at either one of these campuses. In Old Westbury, New York Institute of Technology is just off Route 25A. You know, that's one of the few schools that I have not played at yet in this area. But I've gone past it many times. Right next to it is... That's right, C.W. Post. And uh, it's a beautiful campus out there. You go past that, John? And uh, anyway, it's a good school. They have a tremendous engineering uh, qualifications involved. And if you really want to study radio or television in a professional way, instead of, uh, you know, this uh, five weeks you can be a famous disc jockey jazz, you telephone area code 516, and the number is MA6-3400. It's NYT, New York Institute of Technology. I wish I had studied something. <laughs> no, I'll tell you this, though. There's certain things that cannot be said. I think eventually when the historians finally write the social history of our time, there are many of us who are going to be surprised at the heroes that emerge and the villains that emerge who we thought were heroes. And the old man, get, he, listen, he gave that bag of garbage a shot, beautiful carry-through, and my mother just stood there. And I can remember... I can remember long, curly bits of potato peeling descending through the chandelier in the, in the living room. I can remember a, an empty can of, of, I think it was Crisco, bouncing off the radio. And I, I just remember that disappearing form. And he drove out 
that morning in the Oldsmobile, he had a way of saying what he thought about the world by the way he shifted gears. The angry machine. Anger. Don't mess around. 